We will be in uh, Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 13 today. Um, We are picking up in the middle of our series through the book of Acts. Um, So if you're here with us for the first time, um, we are, I believe, about three months into this series. Um, It's going to be a long one. We go through books of the Bible at a time here um, at Maranatha. And so today we're picking up chapter 4, verse 13 to 22. Um, We have um, this year, not only a member of the church, but also uh, summer pastoral intern, Nathan Stevens, reading our passage today. And Nathan is actually going to be preaching two weeks from today. Um, here on Sunday. So be praying for Nathan as he prepares for that and be excited for it because it's going to be awesome. Um, But with that, we um, stand out of reverence for God's word as we read it together. So if you're able, I'd love to invite you to stand with us as we read uh, this passage today. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. You may have a seat. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, as we open your word, uh, we are grateful that throughout all the uh, chaos, trouble, um, ups and downs, and all the turns in our lives that we go through, as we come to your word, we have your voice. We have your reliable, trustworthy word given to us that we would know the truth. Lord, we pray today, Lord, that this word that doesn't uh, fade like the the flowers, doesn't die like the grass, but instead it carries on forever true, forever authoritative, and forever from you. Lord, we pray that as we open it today, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, that we would understand it, that we would receive it in faith and live it out and have a greater joy and the salvation we've been given in Jesus Christ. It is in His name that we pray, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So today we are in this uh, portion of the story of Peter and John um, not just being on trial. Right before this, Peter and John were walking up to the temple, and as they walked up to the temple, as they did every day, they saw uh, a beggar there that they would have seen every day because he was there, as it says earlier in chapter 3, He was there at the gate of the temple every single day. But this day, on this day, Peter and John stop and they speak with this man. And he says, look, I can't give you money, but what I can give you is the power of Christ to heal you. And so he performs a miracle there. God, rather, performs a miracle through Peter and John to heal this man who was lame, who was unable to walk, crippled from birth. We find out today he's 40 years old. Now they did this 
in the midst of the temple courts, which means that people would have seen it. And people seeing a man who, who they would have seen every day of their lives, all of a sudden he's walking and leaping and jumping around, that's going to cause a stir. But then what happens next is Peter and John go on to preach, and they go on to preach about Christ and the fact that he is the cornerstone. They go on to preach about the fact that Christ was the Messiah that was promised, and that creates an even bigger stir with an even uh, perhaps more dangerous group of people. And that's what we see in the closing of verses 11 and 12. Peter and John are in front of the elders of the city. They're in front of the scribes, which are the kind of the lawyers, the authorities on the law of the day. Not only that, they're in front of the high priests and the high priestly family, really powerful people. And Peter and John, two regular guys, say this to them. They say, this Jesus, this is verse 11 of chapter 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now that is a verse that is spoken with authority to people who are in authority, and it stuns the high priestly council. Right? Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And when's the last time you encountered someone or something that truly left you astonished? Like you really had no words to say. You had nothing you, you can put forward to, to even describe what's happening. You're just left with your jaw on the floor and you're looking at it like, did that really just happen? Right, the, the high priest in this moment, they are looking at two regular guys, uneducated common men. Your translation might actually say um, unlearned and ignorant, which feels like an even bigger insult to Peter and John. But uneducated and common, unlearned and ignorant, they're standing in front of guys that have the PhDs and the doctorates and the titles by their names and the authority vested in them and all of those things. They have the money, they have all of that. And there's two guys that used to be fishermen that didn't go to college that probably didn't, you know, graduate high school. Two guys that don't have degrees, don't have official titles, don't have jobs that are high up on the pecking order or anything like that. And they look them right in the eye and they say, you guys got it wrong. The Messiah was Jesus. You rejected God's salvation. And that leaves them astonished. Leaves them completely astonished and speechless because they're wondering how these guys can speak with authority like that. As we read the word boldness in there, uh, we might think of the word boldness as like um, brashness or maybe just volume. When we think of boldness, we think of somebody just being loud or maybe even arrogant. But what we see here, I think, is something entirely different. One commentator called it a fearlessness and a joyful confidence. That Peter and John here are speaking with a fearlessness and a joyful confidence as they speak to these men. Because they do have reason to be afraid. These are the men who sent their Savior to go and to be crucified. They have reason to be afraid. And yet they're speaking with this joyful confidence in front of them. And what that displayed to the council is that these men must have been with Jesus. The, the joyful confidence, the fearlessness. I'm going to say joyful confidence a lot today because I think it's important. Um, so if you get tired of that phrase, I'm sorry in advance. But that that boldness that they had communicated to them that they must have been with Jesus. And the reason for that is because Jesus, just like them, right, was not a scholar. 
Jesus didn't go to college. He didn't go to um, postgraduate education or anything like that. He was the son not of a high priest. He was the son not of a scribe or a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He wasn't the son of a rich man. He was the son of a carpenter. A son of a carpenter who would go through all of Judea and perform these miracles and teach, if you remember the phrase from the gospel accounts, as one who had authority. People would say about Jesus, basically, who is this? He teaches like one who has authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And so these men now see the disciples speaking, and they're like, oh, wow, they're just like him. They're just like him because they're standing in his authority. So being, like Jesus, or being with Jesus had made Peter and John like Jesus. Knowing Jesus made Peter and John like him, gave him the same boldness and joyful confidence that Jesus himself displayed. And there's something really, just a, a simple truth for us to embrace here. And that is that preaching, the preaching of the gospel, the communicating of truth, the standing for the truth of God is not reserved for powerful people. It's not reserved for academics It's not reserved for those of us who have a doctorate with our names or even a master's degree or even a a bachelor's degree or even a high school diploma. It's not reserved for people who are well-trained, who are eloquent, and who are good at this thing. The declaration of truth, standing with the truth of God, is for anyone who has been with Jesus. It's for anyone who knows him. For anyone who is close with Christ, they are able to speak, right? This is the principle we see throughout Scripture. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He says that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the common things to shame the learned and the, the high-status things. So if you sit here today and you're like, well, I am not that good at speaking. I'm not that strong in the Scriptures. I don't like know enough to speak to a family member or a friend. I definitely don't know enough to speak to a a high priestly council member. It's not about knowing enough. It's not about your authority that you can bring to the table. It's about being with Jesus, being like Jesus, and so you get to speak in the authority of Jesus because he is the truth that you cling to. So your evangelism, my evangelism, it will grow the more that we are with Jesus and the more that we know him. We talk, I think a lot of Christians go around and we're really discouraged about telling people about Christ and how rarely we seem to do it. We don't really seem to know how to do it. The, it's, there's not a direct like silver bullet, the easy plan to become great at it and just do it all the time. No, the way to do it is simply to know Christ more. As you know him more, as you follow him more closely, as you rest in his promises more, as you trust in him more, you will see yourself becoming more useful in speaking to others about Christ. Because it will be more and more a part of your DNA. It'll be more and more a part of who you are. Now, that the fact that Peter and John are so close to being like Christ is, gives the real problem to the council as they say themselves <clears throat> in verse 14. They see the man standing beside them, so they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to lead the council, right, they asked Peter and John to step out so they can talk about what decision they're going to make. And as they do that, they say, what should we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through Jerusalem is evident to all, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. 
But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone else in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. So these guys are between a rock and a hard place, right? Because they, they look around and they say, look, we see the guy ourselves. He is standing up. He used to not be able to do that. That's kind of a big deal. And they know enough to know that we could tell people this was some kind of trick, but they've known this guy for 40 years, right? There's no, there's no like kind of smooth talk that can deny the miracle that's happened. So like, all right, well, I guess we can't deny it. And it's really amazing to me that they say, a notable sign has happened, which in their original context would, um, at least to some extent, point to this hint of the fact that it could have been from God. They're like, look, a notable sign did happen. Yes, the types of signs that the scriptures talk about being associated with the Messiah, and we can't deny it. And that notable sign that they grant happened, right? Like they, like they admit that it happened. That doesn't mean that they trust it that they believe it, or that they listen to it. Isn't that amazing? That these guys can sit there and say, yeah, it happened, and it's a notable sign. But we're going to create a scheme to get around it. Let's tell them not to speak anymore in this name, because the problem with their hearts, just like it's the problem with every human heart, is not a problem of information. It's not that we haven't been told enough about God. It's not that we don't know enough about God. It's not that nature doesn't make it plain enough that God exists. It's not that his word isn't clear enough. No, the reason that, that we don't submit as people, as sinful people to God, is not a problem of information or knowing enough. It is a problem of submission. It's the fact that we don't like to admit that we are not God. We would like to stay God. We would like to remain God in charge of ourselves, in charge of our lives, and get to tell ourselves and other people what to do all the time. And instead, coming to Christ means that we are admitting the fact that we are not God that we're not perfect, that, we're not, that we don't have it all together, and that we actually do need help. Remember what we said last week, that the actual conflict that's happening here is a conflict between authority. When they're talking about preaching in his name, they're not only talking about mentioning his name, but even going back to beforehand, right? We said in, in whenever Peter says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. He's talking about the power and authority of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And even last week, they said, um, by what name, by what power, or what name do you do this? They're asking, who gave you the authority to heal this man? And they say, Christ. Because the central problem, always and forever, the central conflict of everything is always the question, who is Lord? Who is God? Is it man, or is it, is it God? Now, Peter and John hear this, and then they respond in verse 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, uh, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 30, 40 years old. It's kind of a radical statement by Peter and John, right? They sort of ask a rhetorical question here of like, all right, listen, high priests, you tell me who I'm supposed to listen to, you or God, right? And these high priests, if they're, if they're um, Jewish people in any sense of the world, they're going to say, well, you should listen to God. 
You shouldn't listen to me. You should listen to God. That's why Peter asks him the question the way he does it. And that's why he says, listen, we're going to go on speaking. We cannot help but keep speaking. We must keep talking about Christ. So even as we see this here, I want us to look at this, this topic that it brings up for us, which is the, what do we do as Christians when we are in this kind of conflict between authorities, when we are dealing with um, people or authorities, even um, governments and stuff like that, that tell us to walk away from the truth of God. There's a simple truth that guides everything in this conversation. It's simple, but that doesn't mean it's always easy to hold on to, and it's, it's this. Christ is king. Jesus is king of all things forever. He's, he's the king of all things for all time in every situation and absolutely every context you can possibly imagine. Christ is king. Not man, not presidents, not high priests, not congressmen or women. Christ is king. And so there's no authority that any man in any office can claim that is actually higher than Christ's authority. There's no authority in any office or in any man in any office that they can claim that is higher in any way than Christ's authority. Christ's kingship, his authority, his fact that he is in charge rules over all things. And so simply put, Declaring Christ is not just a right that Christ gives to his people, but it is also a duty. It's not just a right that Christ, by his authority, says, yes, my people are allowed to do this. Not only that, but that my people must do this. That we cannot help but speak of Christ. That's all well and good from this passage, but if we know if we know the scriptures well, we might be um, stopping for a moment to ask the question, well, how about those verses in the Bible that talk about submitting to authority, right? How come Peter and John here don't listen to the government? I mean, after all, if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, which is a, a shorter book in your Bible, but it's near the end. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 2, right, this is the same Peter writes this word that is speaking in the book of Acts. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2 verses uh, 13 to 17. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor." There's other passages in Scripture like this, like in Romans chapter 13, uh, in the first few verses of that chapter. That's another one that speaks about the role of government. And so I want to talk for just a minute about a few truths that God lays out in His Word about government. The first thing is that God created government. Specifically, God created three governments. He created the household or the family, He created the church, and He created civil government, right? And when you and I talk about government today, we normally just mean civil government. That's, that's who we're talking about when we're talking about presidents and um, laws and things like that. But God created the family, He created the church, and He created civil government. And as the one who created them, he didn't just make them and then send them off on their own. He actually created them, and so he also gets to define them. 
He also gets to tell them what their boundaries are. They're not just handed a blank check, right? So governments didn't just pop up on their own. The scriptures say there's something that God actually had designed and planned. Man didn't just come up with it from his own idea, just like man didn't come up with marriage on his own. It's created by God, it's defined by God. It's the same way with governments. So there's not a blank check for governments. Instead, governments are created as God's servant to do what he has authorized them to do. Right? Even in this passage, it says that God sent them, he established them to do what? To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And just as a question, do you think that God wants to create governments that way and send them off and say, praise those, praise those who do good, punish those who do evil, and you get to make up the categories of good and evil. You get to decide what's good and what's evil. I'm just going to tell you to go and do these things, but you know, if you want to call something good that I call evil, that's fine. If you want to call something evil that I call good, that's fine too, right? You're the government. You're in charge. Of course God doesn't work that way, that way right? When, when God in his word there says good and evil, there's definitions to those words, And we as humans don't get to make up our own because God, the authority that he gave to civil governments is what we would call a delegated authority. Another way to phrase that would be a borrowed authority, right? God gives them some of his authority to to act as his his, um, institution on the earth to punish evil and to do good. So their authority isn't just inherited by existing. They don't generate it on their own. Instead, the authority of a government comes from the one who created them and gave it to them. And so when governments defy the base of that authority, when they go against God and his word, when they start to step out on their own, just like they do here in this passage, then we as Christians get to recognize the fact that they are actually denying their own authority and we get to humbly, politely, respectfully say no. We get to respectfully, humbly lovingly refuse it because we are recognizing the higher authority, right? We're supposed to fear God and not the authorities. We're supposed to live as servants of God. And that's, that's perfectly fine, like in theory for us, but if you want to imagine for yourself that you're in a courtroom and the people in front of you have the ability to send you to prison for the rest of your life to, to do what, basically whatever they want to you. And you're sitting there right in front of them, and then they just say, listen, you're not allowed to speak about Christ anymore. I mean, how do you have the resolve to look at them and say, I'm going to, speak, I'm going to keep speaking about Christ? Now, you probably are not going to be standing down in, front of, in a courtroom anytime soon. So what happens when you or I are at... We're, we're just in the office, right? We're like at the water cooler or wherever people in our office hang out. And there's maybe not a counsel, there's maybe not a judge on a bench, but there's three of our coworkers who we know are about to make fun of us for the fact that we speak about Christ. There's four people in the office who are influential and popular and important, and we've already had some of these conversations with them, and we know that they don't go well. And we're sitting at the lunch table with friends, and we're like, all right, am I about to actually stand up for some truth here? Am I actually about to step out and be honest? How do we have that attitude? It comes down to one 
one thing, and that is fearing God instead of man. When we fear God, and when I say fear God, fear of God, I mean recognizing His greatness and His holiness. When we have a, a clearer picture of how, and when I say great, I don't just mean that God is cool or that He's good, right? When we talk about God's greatness, I'm talking about the size of God, the absolute eternality, the massiveness of God, of His greatness, the fact that he's without beginning, without end, that he is greater than all things and Lord of all things. When we recognize that, we recognize the fact that he is holy, a fear of him, a right respect and recognition of that will remove the fear that we have in other things. It is the only fear that banishes the other fears. It's the only fear, the fearing God and knowing God is the only thing that will actually remove other fears from you. And so the size of the God that you and I worship needs to increase. One of the reasons that we, have, that we struggle with this, that we, we struggle with stepping out on a limb maybe, we struggle with speaking to our um, parent, we struggle with speaking to our kids, our adult kids, our younger kids, the, one of the reasons that we struggle with speaking with our coworkers, with our classmates, is honestly just because God seems smaller than them. When we have a small picture of God, a God that is like really tiny and polite and he, he's okay with the fact that you come and visit him on Christmas and Easter and he doesn't care about much more than that and, and this God that's so tiny that you can just, you know, put him onto a few parts of your life instead of a God that actually claims all the authority over all of it. And not just you, but listen, the people that you're speaking with, right? When the size of the God that we worship grows in our minds, the fear of man shrinks. We need to be a church, a family of people that worship a big God. And it's not only a fear of Him, it's also, I think, a clearer picture of, of the promises of God. Not just a fear of Him and how great He is, but also a clearer picture of the promises of Christ. One commentator said, as the promises of Christ grow, the threats of the world shrink. As the promises of Christ grow, then the threats of the world shrink. It doesn't matter how big they are. If we have our eyes on Christ, on Christ's promises, on what He's given us in our salvation, then you and I will find the fact that all of the threats of this world and everyone in it are ultimately weak. They're ultimately powerless. Even as Hebrews chapter 10 talks about, right? It says that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's promised he will not leave us or forsake us, so I will not fear. What can man do to me? As you and I really dwell on the facts, the, the beautiful truths of the gospel and everything that comes with it, we will be freer from the threats, from the, from the pressure, from the power, from the, um, the workings of this world. When we remember the fact that Christ, that Christ made us and then he stepped into history to come and to live a perfect life on our behalf so that he could give us a perfect record of righteousness, so that we could stand before God in the confidence of the fact that we are not viewed as ourselves, but we're viewed as Christ, 
And not only did he live perfectly, but then he went and he suffered on the cross in the place of sinners so that anyone who comes and trusts in him has all of their sin removed and all of his righteousness given to them instead. And not only that he's a God that suffered for sin, but he's also a God that absolutely destroyed and broke death in half as he rose from the tomb. And not only that, not only that he rose from the dead, but then he ascended to sit down at the right hand of the Father. That's why the ascension of Christ actually matters in such a big way. It's not just, oh, I wonder where Christ is now. It's the fact that he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, meaning he sits enthroned over everything in all of creation forever. And when we recognize the fact that that's who our God is, and yet he comes to us, he's, he's given to us to forgive us of sin, to reconcile us to the Father. And we remember the fact that all these things are true, that, that, that no matter what is he- headed our way, we are more than conquerors through Christ who is in us. We remember the fact that it's greater he who lives in us than he who is in the world. We remember the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter how much condemnation we had beforehand, now that we are in him, there's none. Absolutely none. Church, today, because of Christ, your faith in him, there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation, and there's only glory. You are in him a new creation. The old is completely gone. The new is here. When we dwell on those things, when we trust in those things, then we can have confidence to stand there in a joyful boldness. No matter what the venue is, no matter if it's people at the lunch table, no matter if it's the courtroom, no matter if it's at the job site this week, no matter if it's with our family who really gets on our nerves and are really difficult to deal with, no matter if it's the friends that mock us for ever even setting foot in a church. All of those promises, that's what you hold on to. You just say, that's nice that you said that, but my God is the one who's on the throne. But listen, the way, the truth of those promises is also what enables us to stand for the truth, but to do it in the way that Christ would have us to do it. Even as Peter talks about later on in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, whenever someone asks you about the hope that is in you, and you have to give a defense for that, he says, do it with gentleness and respect. He doesn't say do it with harshness and volume and anger and threats and and blustering and all this stuff. No, he says do it with gentleness and respect. Not reviling in return, not threatening, not getting angry, but just like Christ did, entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. When you can trust yourself to God, and you can trust that situation to God, then you're freed up from an angry and a self-centered response. And instead, you get to stand there with peace and joy. All these things come back to the fear of God, recognition of His greatness over everything. And with that greatness that God has comes authority. And that's the central theme of today, recognizing Christ as the only one who's on the throne. Recognizing Christ as the only one who's on the throne. 
Well, listen, we can be a church that likes to talk about recognizing Christ's authority. We can be people that like to spend our days talking about how um, people need to understand this and get it. They need to submit to them. But this cuts both ways. So for you and me to spend our time, parents, if you spend your time telling your kids all the time, listen to Christ, submit to his authority, he's the king, he's in charge, you have to obey Christ, and yet you are not obeying Christ, why would your kids do it? And kids, if your parents tell you that, and you're like, whatever, and, and you actually even sometimes maybe tell your parents, hey, you need to listen to Christ, you need to listen to the word, but you aren't doing it, why would they? We need to be his people that joyfully submits to his authority so that we are actually able to speak truth to people who need to hear it. If we disregard Christ's authority, then why shouldn't the world do that? So we as his church need to understand the fact that every area of our lives, absolutely every single one, needs to reflect Christ without exception. So what do we do with this? We, first off, we recognize the fact that He is the Lord of every area in our life. We need to stop treating Christ sometimes like a small God who we can pick up or put down whenever we feel like listening to Him. And we need to remember Him that He is the only name of salvation. He is the cornerstone that was rejected, but is in fact the cornerstone. We need to remember the fact that He is seated at the right hand of God, and so He is the very foundation of salvation, of authority, and all truth forever and without exception. Listen, church, you do have the truth. You do have the truth. When the world tells you that you don't, they're wrong. On God's authority, you do have it, but we must submit to it, learn it, and learn how to speak it in love. See, the boldness that comes to Peter and John, again, it doesn't come because of their miracle. Peter and John are not bold here because a miracle happened. We see this throughout the book of Acts. They are bold plenty of times without a miracle. And so today, you don't need a miracle to happen. You don't need somebody to be healed right in front of you. You don't need some kind of physical sign to happen in order for you to be bold. The boldness comes from knowing God. That's where it comes from. And so we need to remember Him, remember His promises, the, gift that he, the gifts that He has given us. Remember the fact that Christ has set you free. Christ has set you free, and when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So church, let's, let's live like those verses are true. We have been set free, so because of that, we can live in that joyful confidence in Jesus. Because we are set free in Christ, we can live in a confidence in Christ. In every situation, in every stage of life, no matter what, we are set free in Him, so our confidence is in Him. And think again about what you have seen and heard. Think again about what you have seen and heard. That's what the, they say we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. You have seen your sins completely blotted out. You have seen every single ounce of guilt completely removed from your account. 
You've seen every single piece of it put on Christ's shoulders so that when he went to the cross, he was bearing the weight of your sins so that you could be set free. You have seen being made into a new creation. You have seen being made into a son and a daughter of the king. You've seen being made into a chosen race, a people for God's own possession. So let's speak of it. Let's speak of it, right? We are people who are free. Let's speak of it. Let's walk forward in a joyful confidence in Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we confess that so often we um, have small views of you. And Lord, that small view that we often have, Lord, often leads us to listen to the world instead of you. And, and to fear things that we don't need to fear. God, I pray that we as your church would be made into people that fear you and you alone so that all of our other, feel, all of our other fears are released. Every other concern gets put underneath the feet of Christ. Lord, we thank you that above all things we are his. He loves us. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. He has made us his own and set us free. We praise his name for that. We praise your name, God, for that. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.